Well, please have open in front of you then that quite long and challenging reading, certainly from Name's point of view, um, in front of you. I was, uh, I was sort of given the example of a, of a minister once who um, always, when he was reading out passages like that, even though he probably could have pronounced the names, would always just, when he'd get to it, it would just go, him and them. And that, and, 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 and it's absolutely fine. You know, if you are doing a reading up here, that is acceptable. Uh, rather than butchering, you're not going to get it right anyway because you're not a Hebrew speaker and it's not even written phonetically right in your Bible. So, uh, so yeah. Anyway, well done. Sorry. <laughs> Let's have a look at this now. Let me tell you, Sarah and I used to have a little place we went for a retreat, a place we loved to go, uh, mostly before we had our children. It was a lovely little place in Mid Wales. We found this lovely forest uh, somewhere where I, w- I would pronounce wrong, funnily enough, because I'm not good with Welsh, uh, where there's some of these, these basic cottages, and you could just rest in a really, really nice place. And planning, while we were staying there the first time, planning to go to church, we started looking for one that would have an evening service that we could attend on the Sunday. But we drove through village after village. There was no shortage of churches Churches in every village up and down the street, but we couldn't find one that was still functioning as an actual church that was open and had a service that we could attend. It's so sad. That's a country absolutely packed full of churches, Wales, uh, which experienced a revival at the turn of the 20th century that produced some 100 to 150,000 Christian converts in one year. That's staggering. Yet a couple of generations down the line, in many places, there's barely a flicker of life left in those churches. And the same is true of the, the churches, actually, that Sarah and I grew up in. I grew up in a church of over 100 people. It's practically dead now. Uh, and these were good churches. They were full of life. And now they're just in the throes of death uh, with the one or two people in their congregations. It's been said... Um, about one such dying church movement, that it follows a pattern. Listen, the first generation believed and proclaimed the gospel, and everything just kicks off. The next generation assumed the gospel and advocated all the trappings of religion. The third generation denied the gospel, and all that was left was the trappings. An interesting pattern, isn't it? With each generation, the movement slides further and further down a kind of helter-skelter, away from God, spirals out of of control. Until all that's left is is really essentially just a dying social club that does a bit for the homeless and for poorly babies in Africa. Have you you seen churches like that? We had had one local to us in, in Surbiton that we'd got involved in helping. And the minister at this particular church asked the congregation how they would like their Sundays to be. And they, believe it or not, actually said they didn't want any preaching. This is an older congregation, didn't want any preaching, and, and would actually like to have the pool tables out. In the, it was a most bizarre, just a club, doing nothing. I mean, if, if you hadn't heard that conversation, if you hadn't seen that, you wouldn't believe that, would you? Now, there may be any number of reasons for this, but I think the book of Judges actually gets to the heart of the matter of where these things go wrong. And it's here, right here in what we've just read. It might have seemed like a sort of con- uh, confusing collection of bits of information in those chapters, but there's some really good stuff in there. You see, you start the book with the generation that crossed the Jordan 
And walking with their God, they took possession of the promised land. You know, it was a, it was a conquest. And then you end, the genera- you end that generation with the next generation who are both spiritually and morally shipwrecked miles away. Where anarchy reigns, and where we're told actually at the close of the book, some a few centuries down the line, everyone's just doing as they see fit, just making it up as they go along. Everyone's just a rule to themselves, rebels, a lot of them. So here's what we're dealing with this evening. Now, for myself and for those who, like me, are fathers or mothers, how could it be that we might become, or that our children might become, a lost generation, or that your grandchildren might become a lost generation. It happens so often. Parents assume that little Jimmy, little Sally, they're sorted. They know all of the Bible stories, and they can tell you every story. They sing the Colin Buchanan songs in the car as you're driving along. They're singing all of these truths. And they're making all the right noises, and they're giving all the right signs, and they're saying all the right words... Yet in their teen years, suddenly they just do an about turn and they walk away and they turn their backs on it all. What on earth happens there? Leaving their parents devastated and confused most of the time. Those of you who are not parents, perhaps those of you who are not grandparents, don't don't you know, if if you're younger than that, there's one or two here, you may have grown up in a Christian home. But how might you be actually becoming part of a lost generation yourself. How does this happen? You've got to ask yourself, why are you actually here? Why do you come to church? Will you be here in a a year? Some of you, for you, it's just, you know, it's just where you've always gone and you're probably just always going to go there. And that's kind of sad in itself, isn't it? If that's your reason... Some of you, maybe you're moving away from it and slowly outgrowing it, and you won't be here in a year. Well, that's the kind of issues that we're talking about this evening. How does that happen? Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we were in Judges, but if you cast your minds back, those of you who are here for the first session that we did, the start of the series, you'll remember that the Israelites, we left them in a place called Bokim, which means weepers. Uh, They were left in a place where they were actually all bawling their eyes out. And the angel of the Lord had appeared to them and had charged the community with disobedience. They disobeyed the agreement that they'd signed up for with their God. They'd rebelled, they'd turned to idols. The nations of Canaan, that the Lord had commanded them to expel from the land, to pronounce the ban on, they had allowed to remain amongst them and to be an influence amongst them. So not only had they failed to force them out, then actually, we read last week, didn't we, they'd contracted them as slaves amongst them. They were to live amongst them, be in their homes, in their towns, spreading their culture, spreading their influence, their religion, right into the heart of the Israelite community. And the angel of the Lord rebukes them. You can see it at the beginning of chapter 2 there in verse 2. You have disobeyed me, says the angel of the Lord. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. At which the whole community, remember verse 4, breaks down in tears, sobbing. 
And I put the question to you right at the end of that, uh, that first session there. What are those tears? Are they anything really more than just water running down their faces? Are they genuine tears? Well, you probably noticed as we start through this new section we looked at just now, in verse 8, something interesting happens. Joshua dies for a second time. Now, that's a little clue in the text, because if you remember, he's died at the beginning of chapter 1, if you cast your eye over the page. It's not a typo, and it's not an indicator that the book's been somehow stitched together badly from different sources without any thought. What you've actually got here, and it's not the only place this happens in the Bible, is you've had something laid out in front of you in chapter 1, and now we hit the rewind button, and we change the camera angle slightly, and we say, let's, let's look at that again in slow motion from a different angle. In chapter 2, you have a summary here of what the whole book is going to show us inside it. It tells us what has led to and what characterized that spiraling descent into moral and spiritual bankruptcy that ends with them saying, you know, everyone just does as they see fit. And it starts from the outset with a, the scene is set with a lost generation. See, I think the key verse to understanding what went wrong with Israel is probably verse 10. But we'll get to that in just a second. Follow with me from verse 7. Let's run up to it. Verse 7, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen the great things the Lord had done for Israel. His the first generation in the promised land. They'd seen the great things that the Lord had done for them. They'd lived through it. They were the pioneers who entered the promised land with Joshua, their great leader. They crossed the Jordan on dry ground. They'd seen the mighty walls of Jericho come collapsing down, crashing down at the blast of a trumpet. The Lord was with them. And they'd witnessed the powerful deliverance of the Lord. The army of the Lord going ahead of them in victory after victory as they cleared, you know, cut through the land there. They may not have been a perfect people. At times they were disobedient and foolish. But on the whole, their epitaph there, look, in verse 7 tells us they served the Lord. It was a generation that, really the characteristic of them was they, they were a generation that served the Lord. But the trouble is, that generation died. Verses 8 to 9 tell us that Joshua managed to hold out for 110 years, but eventually he, along with all of his generation, died out. And so we have to ask, what was their legacy? And we see their legacy in verse 10 there. Look at verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. That's a pretty shocking thing when you think of the things that the Lord had done for Israel. How could they possibly not know those things? This is the same new generation that we read about two weeks ago, doing all of those things in the first chapter. Remember? Because we've re-round the tape now. But here we get a clearer picture of what's going on under the hood, what's actually happening here in the nation. And the key thing that we're told about this generation here is that they do not know the Lord, nor what he done for Israel. 
Now, I'm sure they'd heard the stories. They must have heard the stories. Many's the time when mum would have tucked her little Israelite boy into bed at night with the stories of the walls of Jericho, of course. And they still knew that the God of Israel was Yahweh, Jehovah. Well, Yahweh is the more correct, probably more correct way to pronounce it. The national religion of Israel was Yahweh worship. That he, he was their God. They still had the tabernacle, you see. They still had the altar to the Lord. All of that stuff was in the nation. They jolly well knew about that, that that was their religion. If you'd done a census, everyone in that new generation would have ticked a box with Yahweh next to it on the census. Of course, there'd always be a few weirdos who'd tick Jedi or something, wouldn't they? But most of them, almost all of them would have ticked Yahweh. We worship Yahweh. He's our national God. And yet, says Joshua, or whoever wrote the book of Joshua, they did, did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. They knew about the Lord, sure. But they didn't actually know the Lord. And that's a very big difference right there. They had no relationship. No relationship. The book of First Samuel gives you a really good insight into this. Of course, First Samuel was probably written just at the end of the era of the judges. There's a parallel sort of illustration as to what this might have looked like in the nation. Samuel paints the scene for us at the temple of the Lord in Shiloh. And he tells us a story where the two sons of Eli, the priest that raised him, he's got two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They are priests serving in the tabernacle at Shiloh. These guys are the guys running the temple. They're, they're the ministers of the church, as it were. The clergy, the priests, who welcome the worshippers and administer all the sacraments for them. But behind the scenes, something's going badly, badly wrong. When people brought their offerings to give to God, Hophni and Phinehas would take all the best stuff for themselves often taking it from people by force. They would take it from them. They even used their position of authority, reports Samuel in 1 Samuel, to get sexual favours from the women who served at the temple courts. Amazing, isn't it? That's what's going on. What does that say about the, their view of God, that they felt they could rip him off with impunity? and use his temple as their own personal brothel. Shocking, isn't it? Well, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 tells us this. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Listen, they did not know the Lord. That's, what's, that's the problem. That's, that's, that's the description under them. There it is. They did not know the Lord. They did not acknowledge the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, did not matter to them and had no influence over them. No impact on their lives. No influence on what they thought or what they said and certainly not on what they did. You might have, in those days, gone to the temple there and thought, oh, what lovely boys. Look, Eli must be so proud. Following their dad into ministry. But nothing went deeper than the service. There's a danger there, isn't there? You hear the danger? We might teach our children or our grandchildren what to do. 
how to look, what to say. With all the right words and all the right actions, and yet never teach them about really knowing God. It doesn't matter what you tick on a census form. It doesn't even matter whether you wear a dog collar or priestly robes, does it? You still might not actually know the Lord. You might not know him. So what was this shift, this change that happened between Joshua's generation and the one that followed it that meant that they no longer knew the Lord? What, where, where did it go wrong? See, unlike the gods of other religions... The God of the Bible has always been a God of relationship. The whole Bible storyline is full of this, isn't it? God entering into relationships with people. You can trace it all the way from the beginning of the Bible. Often, it's face-to-face conversations with the, with the angel of the Lord, you know, getting to know the Lord. And that's the God that Joshua's generation knew, isn't it? He's the God who had a personal encounter with them, who chose them, spoke to them, entered into an agreement, a covenant with them as they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and called them his people, called them his his treasured possession. They knew the Lord, but this generation did not. And here's why the sin of leaving all of those Canaanites all over their country really was so serious. I read a a quote a few weeks back. Listen, the author says, Our high calling is to be in the world, not of the world. It is not our being in the world that ruins us, but our suffering the world to be in us. Just as ships sink, not by being in the water, but by the water getting into them. You see the difference? You see, at heart, this generation was really, I suppose, no worse than those that went before them. There'd certainly been plenty of grumbling, complaining, and rebellion in those previous generations. I mean, they were wayward. They wanted to worship all sorts of things too. But this generation allowed the influence of the world around them. In actual fact, the previous generation before them had opened the doors, hadn't they? They allowed the pagan peoples who lived amongst them to penetrate their hulls and to rewrite their understanding of who God actually was. And so that generation made a shift. They made a shift from relationship to religion. That's what happened in the land. They shifted from relationship with a covenant God, a relationship of love, to the pagan idea of religion, offerings, appeasements of an impersonal God. Yahweh, the Lord, became to them one of many options, one of many gods available. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 11 there. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger. Because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. You see, the the Canaanite people were no doubt very religious people. They were living amongst religious people. 
rather than just the one tabernacle that the Israelites had, the one temple in one place that they had, these people, these Canaanites, had, had idols and shrines and Asherah poles, it seems, pretty much on every street corner. And you can imagine the conversations that went on between the two communities. <clears throat> you know, yours is the God of Israel, the, you know, the God from the wilderness. That's all very nice, but now you're living in Canaan now, aren't you? Hey? And here, we worship Baal. Uh, you know, we pay tributes to Baal and his wife, Ashtoreth. Baal will give you fertility. You want crops? You want children? You want rain? Baal has been taking care of that stuff here for donkey's years. He's the one you want to go to. You know, by all means, keep your Yahweh worship. Give him some offerings, yeah, so that, you know, keep him sweet. Give him what he wants so that he gives you what you want from him. But you really should think about worshipping Baal too. That would be the kind of influence on them, wouldn't it? See, that's how man-made religion works. Perform for your God, and your God will perform for you. That's religion. That's not relationship. That's just religion. Keep all the gods happy. They'll probably, you know, somehow, the odds are you'll get what you want from them. And this generation seems to have tried that approach on the Lord. They stuck him in just with a collection of their gods. They relegated him to one of many in the pantheon of gods. One of many equal, valid options. Who are you to tell me who I should believe in? You know, don't all the roads lead to the same place anyway? All of that stuff. And from that basis, well, Baal actually starts to make more sense, doesn't he? After all, we're living in his territory now. We are. We are. This is a good point, isn't it? And so, verse 12, they forsook the Lord and they provoked the Lord to anger. So do you see the move, the move there? Let me just show you this on, on the screen there. It, it's, it's, a, it's a trip down the helter-skelter, isn't it? No relationship with the Lord. So this, this generation copies the religion and the ritual that they see around them. And so the Lord becomes relegated. to He becomes one of many options. And then, of course, rejected in favor of what's more sensible, more attractive, more convenient. You know, you've only just got to go down the road and you've got a Baal shrine. More according, perhaps, to my tastes. Could that happen to us? You know, all this talk of Baal and Asherah poles and idols and shrines. Can this happen to us in this day and age? The sad testimony of history is a resounding yes. It does happen. It happens when we stop preaching the gospel to ourselves and our children. That's when it happens. When we stop preaching the truth. When we make the assumption that the gospel, the message that God in Jesus, came into the world to rescue sinners and to freely save all who put their trust in him. We take that message and, and, and we, we assume that we only need to preach that message to outsiders and we don't need to be preaching that message to ourselves. That's what happens. It's fascinating to read, isn't it? The book of the, the sorry, the beginning of the letter to the Romans that Paul writes. It's an interesting comment he makes. He he tells them in Rome that he is really he's been doing lots of missionary work, but he's really eager to come to them for a particular purpose. 
He wants to preach the gospel to them also, to the believers in the church. He says, I want to preach the gospel to you because you need to hear it. You need to be more firmly established in it. When we lose the gospel of grace, we, the problem with our hearts is we fall into the default of human religion. That's what happens. And we find that the next generation are relating to God through religion and rituals and rules. Legalism pops in straight away. That's how we're programmed. Listen to what one writer says. The antidote to legalism is always to recover the sheer scandal of the gospel of grace. That what we do adds nothing and takes nothing away from what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. That's the antidote. That's what we need to preach to the very next generation. It's the message you must pass on to our children. If we want to see the next, our next generation even having a chance of walking with God. Keep banging that drum. Grandparents, parents, bang that drum. You've got to. Because our, the hearts of our children are programmed against it. We're saved by grace, not by what we do. Uh, you know, kids are having preached at them that what they do is the only thing that matters all day long. We must deprogram that with the gospel. So important. Our kids are born legalists, aren't they? Everything else in the world is telling them to do and say the right things. We must reach them with the gospel. But God is not like that. Each generation needs to learn afresh that we are, in fact, actually more wicked than we could possibly imagine and yet more loved than God, by God than we ever dreamed. Need to learn it afresh all the time. Well, this new generation had lost their relationship with the Lord. And so they turned their back on him. They gave themselves in devotion to their gods. They just turned to religion. And it provoked, as we saw in verse 12, provoked the Lord to anger. But read on with me, verse 14 there. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight... The hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. And they were in great distress. And so starts the vicious cycle of the book. <laughs> it's a downward spiral for this generation who no longer know the Lord. Same patterns repeated over and over in every story that we're going to read in the book. If you look on the slide there, you see, you can follow it in, in, your, in your Bibles. Verse 11, the Israelites do evil. They turn their backs on God and worship idols. It's, it happens the same way every time, which verse 12 provokes the Lord to jealous anger. So he hands them over to their enemies who take their crops and treat them brutally. It happens pretty much every time. Then verse 15, having handed, been handed over to their enemies, it's not long before they cry out in distress and misery because their life's just become awful. And then verses 16 to 18, that, that cry of distress moves God's heart with compassion towards them. And he raises up a judge to deliver, them, to deliver them. And then you get peace for a time, but as soon as the judge dies, look at verse 19, the cycle just starts all over again. Cycling on and on, round and round. They never seem to break out of it. In fact, according to verse 19, if you look, each successive generation seems to be worse than the previous. They're going round and round, but are also going downwards. 
down the toilet. They're helter-skeltering into oblivion. Why can't they break out of it? Why can't they do that? Because there's a missing ingredient. There's no repentance. There's no repentance. Without relationship, you see, having lost relationship, all you get is sorrow, but no change. Now, parents know this, don't you? I often get this with my kids. I'm sure all dads here can relate. You know, you have that conversation. Stealing your sister's biscuit and making her cry was wrong. It's very bad. I'm going to punish you. We don't quite say it that way. It's usually I'm a lot more worked up by that point. <coughs> but anyway, there's tears. At this point, there's weeping. There's devastation. I haven't laid a finger on them. <coughs> I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. Next day, or even within the hour, usually in our home, done it again. Tears and weeping, and I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. That's sorry without repentance, isn't it? It's sorry without repentance. How many times have I had that conversation with my children? The difference between saying sorry and actually meaning sorry. Meaning sorry brings on repentance, doesn't it? Repentance means change. It means a radical break from my wickedness. It means a change of heart towards it, a change in direction. Repentance, real repentance, would break the cycle that this nation's got themselves into. But do you know it never happens? It never happens in the book, not really. You know, I went through the whole book looking for these particular words and looking at what goes on each time round the circle. In the entire book, there is only actually one incident where you read that at that point of weeping, they get rid of their idols. Only once. All the tears, all the sorrow, and but I love my Baal, and I want my little shrines and my idols. And they hold on to them whilst crying, and God still takes pity. The second letter to the Corinthians puts it really well. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says this in verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Repentance for the true believer is a daily practice. Do we teach our children to repent? To really turn away from their sin? As we become as believers, every day, when we become aware of the different forms of sin in our lives, we daily turn from them and turn to God in repentance, don't we? It's a life of repentance to be a believer. Without repentance, our tears are nothing more than just water. What happened at Bochim was just a lot of tears. No change of heart. And time and time again, the nation weeps and is, uh, is upset and distressed and moved with compassion. God sends his, deliver, his deliverer time and time again, too, in response. But it's not repentance. It's like kids in a reception class, isn't it? You ever been into a reception class? When the teacher's in the room, it's all ordered and it's all calm. It's lovely. But if she leaves, only minutes later... The whole group will descend into anarchy. I remember one class I was observing on the Wirral, 
uh, during my teacher training, that the teacher left the room for a couple of minutes whilst the scissors were out on the desk. <laughs> Within a very short time, I saw, I, it, was, it was chaos. I saw one boy grab a trouser leg of the boy next to him, like this, and then snip, <laughs> hole about that big in his trousers. Unbelievable. Mayhem. Like the Israelites, I didn't step in, I was just enjoying it. Like the Israelites with, with their judges. As soon as the teacher leaves the classroom, as soon as the judge is off the scene, the true heart's revealed once again. And the true heart hasn't changed. Well, my final point as we close, briefly, just want to talk about the covenant God's response. The covenant God of Israel responds. Let's look at his response. How will the Lord respond to his ever wayward people? Well, he responds with jealous wrath and with compassion. Jealous wrath and compassion. First of all, why is God so wrathful and jealous? Why does God get angry and jealous? Because God loves his people. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? That's a response when you love someone. Jealousy and wrath. Imagine a husband who's always loved and been devoted to his wife and then discovers she's been unfaithful. What will his response be? Because he loves and treasures her, he will be outraged. There should have been an exclusive relationship. She's given herself to another and then jealousy wells up. Rightly, doesn't it? He wouldn't love her if he wasn't jealous. If he didn't really love her, well, what's the big deal? These things happen, get over it, you know? You see, it, actually, it is actually the jealousy and the wrath of God within which that we see his love for his people. But notice something even more staggering here. God sends his rescuer. Even when there's no repentance, God still sends deliverance. Even when there's no turning back, no tearing down of idols, the Lord is simply moved with compassion when he sees the sorry state that his people have got themselves in. Repeatedly, they turn their backs on him. You know, verse 17 is very strong there. His precious loved one, Israel, rejects the God who loves them, the one who treasures them. They turn prostitute give themselves repeatedly, we're told there, to vile idols, to false gods. Israel destroys herself, sinks down into the mire, bringing on herself God's wrath until it seems he can stand it no longer. And he sends a deliverer. He sends a rescuer. It's not because they deserve it. It's not because they've even changed the tiniest bit. It is simply because he is an outrageously gracious God. In finishing, in case you can't see it, let me rub in for you how the God of judges is still the same God today. You see, the world that we live in is, is still the same. It prefers created things. It prefers fake gods over their creator. The world rejects him. Our world prostitutes itself. We give our souls to the worship of other gods. Money, success, education, whatever it is. 
And so God's jealous anger becomes provoked. And he hands this world over to its sinful desires. Don't we see that? So that we wallow in our filth. So that we just sit there in our rebellion, desperate. These are encouraging things because it's in that uh, that filth, in that brokenness and distress that God's emotions well up in pitying love and he sends a rescuer. You know what? You would never invent a God like that. You just wouldn't. In mythology, you'll never get a God like that. (laughs) It'd be frankly ridiculous, wouldn't it, to invent a God like that? He pities. He sends rescue to a people who reject him, turn their back on him. Not because they've repented, not because they've changed. This is not a God who meets you halfway. It's not a God that you find in other religious systems. A God who helps those who help themselves. That's not the God of the Bible. He's not a God of, hey, clean up your act first. You've got to reach a certain level of devotion, I'm afraid, before I'm going to do anything for you. Get some good deeds under your belt first, and perhaps I'll reach down and lift you the rest of the way. That's not the God of the Bible. And it's a good thing too, because if this book teaches us anything, this book of Judges, anything about ourselves as human beings, because we haven't changed It's that we simply don't improve. If anything, we just get worse. We simply cannot change. We're enslaved to this constant pull, this relentless relentless downward spiral, down the helter-skelter of our wicked passions. But the God we find in the book of Judges is the God who will stoop the whole way. That's the God of the Bible. That's Jesus came the whole way, left his throne in heaven, gets down into the mud and the mire with us, lifts us out of the filth and the mire and sets our feet on a rock. Do you know that God? Do do you know him? That's the question. Don't be part of this lost generation. Come to him today. All he asks is that you trust him as your saviour. The Lord Jesus. Let's follow him.